0: So Lord, we pray that you would bless the meditations of our heart on this first Sunday of Lent. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, a couple months ago, Laura and I decided we were going to put our house on the market. And so if you've ever sold a house, you know that there's a lot of prep work that needs to happen in order to get a house ready to put on the market. I knew going into this that this was going to be a pretty big undertaking, That and I knew that there was going to be a lot of work that needed to be done, and quite frankly, I was really, really overwhelmed because there was a lot of work to be done, and honestly, I had no idea even where to start. So before we started, our realtor, the the, the great Jen Diaz, she comes, over to a, she comes over to our house and she walks us through the house and points out everything that she says, that she thinks needs to be done. Things that need to be fixed, walls that need to be painted, holes in the walls that need to be fixed, all that kind of fun stuff. But what she said was this. She said, before you do any of that, you seriously need to declutter this house. Those were her exact words. <laughs> So we've been doing that. The last couple months, we have gone through the house, and we've gotten rid of a lot of things. We've given things away. We've sold things. We've thrown a lot of things away. In fact, a, a few, I don't know, a few weeks ago, we rented one of those big industrial dumpsters, and it, it was like 10 yards long. The guy comes, and he drops it in our, in our driveway, and I'm thinking, there is no way I'm going to fill this. You know where I'm going with this. Two days. Two days, and I am not joking about that, it was completely filled with just junk that had been laying around our house and laying around our yard. It was stuff that, that I didn't even realize we had that much unnecessary junk. I didn't. Okay, maybe if I'm honest, I did know that we had it, but I kept making excuse after excuse after excuse as to why I should keep holding on to it. Well, I can tell you, once I started throwing stuff into that dumpster, it was actually really cathartic, and I really didn't want to stop. It was really freeing just to get rid of all of this stuff that we had that was weighing us down that, honestly, I didn't even realize it was weighing us down until it wasn't anymore. I think Lent is a lot like that. I think the season of Lent is a lot like that because we carry around so much stuff in our lives that just weigh us down. And sometimes we just make excuse after excuse why we we don't want to let it go. And sometimes we don't even realize how much of a burden it is until we're actually free of it. And so, friends, the Sunday is the first Sunday of Lent, and we're entering into the 40-day period of journeying with Jesus into the season of Lent. But I want to make a confession to you as we begin this season of Lent. Here's my confession. I don't like Lent. This is probably my least favorite out of all the liturgical seasons. I really don't like it. I would much rather just skip straight to Easter and get on with the good stuff. But even though I don't like it, I know that I need it. And you know what? I know that you need it too. Because we all carry around sins and temptations in our lives that we just don't need to carry. Let me say a couple things about Lent. First thing I want to say is that Lent is not something that we enter into alone. It's not something that we do alone. Look, if it wasn't for Jen Diaz coming over to my house and showing me all the things that needed to be done to my house that I couldn't see, and if it wasn't for the many of you who come over to my house to help me fix things that I had no idea how to fix, my house would still be in disarray. It would still be in disarray. And in the same way, we need each other to help get our spiritual houses In order, That's why scripture tells us to confess our sins to one another and to carry each other's burdens. We need each other to speak into our lives to show us things that maybe we can't see or to help us to be truthful about things in our lives that maybe we just don't want to be truthful about. It's not always fun, but I can assure you that it's good. Because once we're honest about the sins in our lives and we confess them, only then can we experience freedom from them. Second thing I wanna say about Lent is this. We need to remember that we're not entering into Lent in our own power. We're not entering into Lent in our own power because if we do, I can assure you that Lent will not have the effect that it's intended to have in our lives. We can't take on spiritual practices of, of like fasting and confession and Lent under our own strength because if we do, we're gonna fail. We're going to fail. The other thing we can't do in Lent is approach it in some ritualistic or legalistic fashion, thinking as long as I just kinda go through the motions, then everything will work out the way that it's supposed to. Let me encourage you with this, that this Lenten season, in and of itself, if it is devoid of the spirit of God, it's nothing. It really is nothing. But Lent isn't something that we're supposed to enter into in our own power. Lent is supposed to drive us to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, every time we enter into Lent, it actually makes me thankful that Jesus has defeated Satan. You know why it makes me thankful? Because it reminds me that I don't have to Reminds me that we don't have to. Jesus has defeated the powers of sin. He's defeated the powers of hell. He's defeated the powers of death. And thanks be to God, we don't have to try to do something that we could never do. Jesus has overcome all of those things that that always, always defeat us. Jesus was obedient to God when we were disobedient. And because of that, Christ is the righteous one. We're all unrighteous people. But Christ... Out of pure love for us, He imparts His righteousness to us and makes us worthy to stand fully justified before the Father based solely on Christ's merits alone. It's Christ's obedience that we claim as we enter into Lent, not our own. We have no righteousness of ourselves, but thanks be to God, Christ is our righteousness. So as we enter into Lent, we can recalibrate ourselves to the righteousness that is found only in Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at our gospel lesson. And our gospel lesson is going to show us the beginning of Jesus' defeat of Satan. And in doing so, it's going to set the tone for how we can enter into Lent. So if you have your scriptures, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. It's the passage that Fred read just a minute ago. As you're turning there, let me say a couple things about this text. When we read this text, we're going to see that there are lots of ways in which the temptations that Jesus that Jesus experienced, it has continuity with the temptations that we experience and the temptations that is experienced by all of humanity. Hebrews 4:15 reminds us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We can't forget the fact when we read this that Jesus, the Son of God, has become fully human. He is the incarnate, fully human Son of God. And yet, at the same time, as we read this text, we need to be aware that there is a very real discontinuity with what Jesus is experiencing and our and what we experience. Because ultimately... This story is not about us. It's not about our experience. The story is meant to further illuminate and to further reveal Jesus' identity as the Son of God. That's the purpose of the story. And to reveal the fact that as the Son of God, he will accomplish his mission and his ministry in full obedience to the Father. So read along with me, starting in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Spirit returned from the jordan and was led by the power of the spirit or led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days and when they were ended he was hungry the one thing i want us to note at this point is the role of the holy spirit just prior to this event in luke chapter 3 jesus is baptized by john in the jordan and the spirit descends upon jesus and then the voice of the Father comes, proclaiming Jesus as God's true Son. Well then, if we read on in, verse, in chapter 4, immediately following this event in the temptation, we see Jesus going into the synagogue in Nazareth. And the first thing he proclaims is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. And so here in this temptation narrative, we see that it is the Spirit of the Lord of the Lord that leads Jesus out into the wilderness. The point of that is that the Holy Spirit is the driving force behind all of Jesus' ministry. In verse one, it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. It then goes on, says he fasted for 40 days and he was hungry. Notice the contrast. Jesus is physically empty. Physically, he is empty. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. But he's full. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's spiritually full. You see, it wasn't his external circumstances that he was relying on in order to remain faithful to God in the midst of these temptations. It was being full of the Holy Spirit. That's important for us to remember because, friends, we can't rely on nor can we blame our weaknesses on external circumstances. Well, if things would have just been better. I mean, think of Adam in the garden. He had everything he wanted. Think of Israel in the desert. Now, they were in the wilderness, but God was still providing for them. And every time they failed, we can be tempted and we can fail in any and all circumstances, whether in abundance or scarcity. It doesn't matter. Without the Spirit of the Lord, we're empty. In fact, that's actually one of the purposes of Lent, and that's one of the reasons why we fast in Lent, to show us just how empty our souls really are, and then to drive us back to the one who can satisfy the only one who can satisfy us. See, in our hunger and in our emptiness, we have this tendency to search for all of these things that might we think might fill us up. That's why Paul says, hey, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So here we see Jesus, he's hungry, and in his hunger, the devil devil comes to him, and in verse 3, he says, if you are the son of God, then command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The key to this whole passage lies in the emphasis on Jesus as the son of God, Now, as I said earlier, the purpose of the temptation narrative is to expound on Jesus' identity and to further reveal him and to show that he's going to accomplish his mission in full obedience. And what he does is he accomplishes his mission in full obedience where other children of God have failed. Here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. St. Luke is, is using this event to highlight a very real contrast between Jesus and Adam and between Jesus and Israel. If you, in your Bibles, if you turn back a page to, to Luke chapter 3, the very end of Luke chapter 3, Luke inserts a genealogy that goes all the way from Jesus back to Adam. And what does he call Adam in there? He calls Adam the son of God. Now, obviously, Adam's identity as the Son of God is very different than Jesus' identity as the, the Son of God. But think about this. What is Adam? Adam is the, the first human. And as such, he's the origin from which all humanity proceeds. But what does he do? He disobeys God. And as a result, death entered into the picture for all humanity. Romans 5.15, Paul says this. He says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That obedience is ultimately the obedience that led Jesus to the cross to die for the sins of Adam and for the sins of all of humanity so that we all might live. And Luke wants to show that Jesus is the true representative of humanity in a way that Adam never could have been. Also think of Israel, the children of God. They are God's chosen children, but what do they do? Especially during 40 years of wandering in the desert. They also disobey God. Over and over, they're unfaithful to his covenant. The children of God, the, the children of God who are chosen to be the light of the nations, the one through whom the Abrahamic blessing was supposed to be shared to all the nations of the world, they consistently consistently disobeyed God, and as a result, all of the nations that were supposed to have been blessed and brought in remained outside of the blessing. But Jesus, the Son of God, who is the representative of Israel and as the Messiah is the true Israel, who remains obedient to the law and the covenant, he takes the demands of the law and he takes them to the cross, and in doing so, he opens wide the floodgates of blessing and salvation for all. Romans 10, that we read a little bit ago, says this. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness for everyone who believes. Then in verse 12, Paul writes again that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What Israel and Adam failed to do because of their disobedience, Christ has done. And Christ's righteous obedience means this, that salvation is open to you. That salvation is open to you simply through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That God has done something that for us that we could never do. Now friends, I wanna dig into the passage a little bit more. We're gonna kind of say just a little high, a bit of a high level as we look at the rest of these temptations. Um, but, We're going to look at each of these temptations in turn. The first temptation is the one about Jesus turning stones into bread. What happens is he's hungry. He comes and Satan says, why don't you turn the stone into bread? He definitely has the power to do it. But really, this first temptation is not about food. This temptation is to see whether or not Jesus would would use his power to satisfy himself or whether he would remain obedient and rely solely on God's provision, which is exactly what Adam and Israel failed to do. See, God did provide for both in abundance, but they wanted God's provision on their own terms. Jesus could have certainly turned the stones into bread. We've seen him do a similar thing. In John chapter 6, Jesus is once again in the wilderness, and a great crowd comes to a multitude. They're hungry, and all they have are two loaves of bread and five fish. And what does Jesus do? Well, he takes that bread, and he blesses it, and he multiplies it, and he feeds empty, hungry people. See, that's the whole mission of Jesus, to, prov- to, prov- sorry, to provide for others what they can't provide for themselves, Jesus was fully God, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant in order to serve others. Jesus knew better than anyone that his mission was to provide for others and not himself because as as he says in John chapter six, that he is the bread of life who has come for the life of the world. Isn't it a funny thing that the bread of life is here being tempted to turn a stone into bread? Jesus knew that life does not come from externals from the stuff of a physical life. It's not physical food that gives life, but it comes solely from the word of God. And of course, he would know because he is the incarnate word of God. He knows that life can't come from turning stones into bread. No, 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 no. Life comes not from stones that are turned into bread, but from the one who can directly take our hearts of stone and turn them into stones of flesh that are sensitive to the Holy Spirit It can receive the life-giving Spirit of God. That's the cure for hunger and nothing else will do. The second temptation starts in chapter five. The devil takes Jesus up and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment. And he says, to you, I will give you all of this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I will. If you worship me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship your, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, there's an irony to all of these temptations. Here, the devil is offering Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in exchange for Jesus to worship him. But here's the funny thing. All the kingdoms of the world are already promised to Jesus. I see Psalm Two, verses seven and eight says this: "The Lord said to me, "You are my Son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possessions." See, all the nations were already rightfully His. Jesus is the world's true Lord, but here the devil is offering him a chance to take possession of them without the need for going to the cross. And all it takes is a simple act of worship. Israel took that bait over and over and over again. They worshiped false idols and they worshiped false gods. Even in the wilderness, they made a cow out of gold and they worshiped it thinking that maybe it can provide for them better than the God who led them out of slavery. Jesus doesn't take the bait, but he remains faithful to the, God, uh, to the Father because he knows that his kingdom, the kingdom of God, the one that relativizes and draws in all other kingdoms can only be inaugurated on the cross. And the reason why that is is because it's only through his own death that he can defeat the powers of death and by doing so defeat the one who holds all the kingdoms of the world captive. Jesus doesn't need to worship the devil because he's about to go to the cross and fully defeat the devil and take back what is rightfully his. Third temptation, starting in verse nine, Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem, to the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, hey, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down because it's written that God will command his angels to guard you, and Jesus says, simply says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, the temptations here end in Jerusalem, and for Luke, that means that there's a foreshadowing of the end of Jesus' mission on the cross when he dies in Jerusalem. But here the devil is quoting Psalm 91, the psalm that we read just a little bit ago, and he's doing that to tempt Jesus in order to make a public spectacle of himself to prove to everyone that he really is the Son of God. He's saying, look, hey, if you're the Son of God, then God's gonna keep his promise of protection for you. Why don't you do something so that all Jerusalem can see it, and you know, hey, they're gonna follow you, Right? Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To test God means to try to force God's hand, to make him fulfill a promise according to your own agenda and your own timing. Think of Abraham. He was promised a child, but then he got tired of waiting and he took matters into his own hands. And he had a child with his wife's maidservant and we see how well that turned out for him. Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. Jesus knew that God had made promises to him and he was going to be faithful to that. And so Jesus refuses to demand that God fulfill his promise. He refuses to use his privileged status as the son of God in order to force God's hand. The son of God will be revealed to Israel and to all the world in Jerusalem that he is the Messiah and the son of God, but only after the cross and only after the resurrection. You see, all throughout this temptation narrative, Jesus has been revealed to be the obedient son of God who remains faithful to God. This event was actually a, a, a time of preparation for the trials that he was going to endure throughout the rest of his ministry. Jesus was tempted, he was tried, he suffered, and yet he remained obedient to the plan of salvation, which was to take him all the way to the cross of Calvary. And here's what happened because he did. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 8, it's written here, it says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at that name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so friends, as we enter into Lent, I can assure you, if you enter into Lent in the power of the Holy Spirit, your unrighteousness, your disobedience, and your emptiness, it's gonna be exposed. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because it should drive us then to take hold and to rest in the righteousness that is found only in Christ. So we don't have to cover our sins. We don't have to to try to hide them. We don't have to pretend to be something that we're not or could never be, because Christ is our righteousness. Therefore, friends, let's unburden ourselves this Lent of all the junk in our life that weigh us down. Let's cast them on the one who's already nailed them on the cross so that we can be free to follow the Spirit wherever he leads us in this Lenten season.